In the late 3rd century, there were two men. One was a Roman emperor and the other was a pastor. And one day the emperor needed to defend his kingdom from invaders. And he therefore decreed that the very best soldiers were unmarried soldiers, and so he outlawed marriage. The pastor, however, thought differently. The pastor said that marriage is a gift from God to display the love of God. And this pastor therefore defied the emperor and secretly performed marriages. This, of course, enraged the emperor, who in turn incarcerated the pastor for performing these illegal marriages, and this pastor awaited execution. While in jail, the pastor met the jailer's daughter, prayed over her blindness, and when she was cured, her entire family converted to Christianity. This made no difference to the emperor who ordered the pastor beheaded anyway, and it was done. The emperor's name was Claudius II. Claudius, conqueror of the Goths. And the pastor's name? Valentine. Valentine. And that's one of the alleged counts of St. Valentine, this martyred spiritual leader, this pastor who died of beheading around the year A.D. 270. Sadly, the holiday that bears his name completely ignores our Christian brother's courage and sacrifice. And yet his story reminds me of something that the Bible tells us over and over again, that there are two kingdoms which compete for our hearts, two empires which vie for our allegiance, the empire of this world and the empire of our God. And these two empires, these two kingdoms, they function on two very different operating systems. One operating system, the leaders exercise control with an iron fist and selfishness and me-centeredness. The other, the kingdom operates with truth, Jesus, mercy, grace, One kingdom leaves in its wake anarchy and chaos and devilish centeredness. The other kingdom leaves in its wake peace and a harvest of righteousness. One kingdom operates on wisdom from below. The other operates on wisdom from above. The kingdom of this earth in the kingdom from above. And always, always, always there's the question, always, to which kingdom do I belong? Which empire am I going to be a part of? And they are mutually exclusive, 
and they are in conflict. They always have been, and they always will be. Which kingdom are we going to be a part of? Well, that's the question that James raises in James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. And I want you to turn there, if you would, this morning. In your church Bibles, you'll find James 3, 13 to 18 on page 855. And we're going to be looking at these two operating systems, wisdom from below, wisdom from above. James 3, 13 to 18 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But wisdom that comes down from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. This is God's Word, James 3, 13 to 18. And as we look through these verses this morning, I, I want to, I want to um, answer three questions. I want to answer the question, what, why, why are these verses here? What's the context? What's, uh, verses don't just appear out of the Bible for no reason. There's a reason, and I want us to talk about what that is, the context. Then after we learn why these verses are here, I want us to talk take a look at what they're actually saying, what the content is of these verses. What's, what's James' message uh, for us today? And then the take-home, all right? So the context and the content and then the take-home. That's where we're headed today. And the context of these verses in which James begins, who is wise and understanding among you, you know, why does he all of a sudden introduce this paragraph with this question, the, the context takes us all the way back to James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nation. James is a pastor, and he's writing to Christians in the first century of Hebrew ethnicity. And that's why he uses this word tribes, uh, going back to their Old Testament, their, uh, their Jewish ethnicity, their heritage. To the 12 tribes scattered. Why are they scattered? Because they've been facing persecution. And they have not had the privilege of gathering in community like what we're doing. They're not only outside the city of Jerusalem, but they're separated and scattered outside the nation of Israel. And they're in pockets, little groups of maybe 10 or 50 or 100. And so the, they just don't have what we're enjoying here in corporate worship as the as the the as the, the God's people have gathered together in, in worship for him. They're, they're scattered. And, and James is answering the question here, 
what is it that God is doing that is forging authentic and genuine faith in his people? He begins by saying, consider it pure joy, brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. See, see, James is trying to explain, listen, when you're being persecuted, when you're suffering for your faith, we may not know what the answer is, but we know what it isn't. It isn't because God is angry or upset with you because he poured out all of his wrath on his son on the cross. So if you're suffering, it's not because God is angry with you. God is doing something else. God is forging faith. He's, he's taking you through a trial to test the authenticity of your faith because he wants men and women of God who are tough and tempered and mature and complete, not lacking anything. You, you just, you just can't have a mature faith forged uh, on the beaches of Honolulu. It's just not gonna happen, all right? You need to go through trials and tests so that you can develop perseverance. And so James talks about the, the trials test here in chapter 1. And, and then, and then in, in chapter 2, he, he talks about the love test. Remember the love test where, where two individuals come into corporate worship and one is wealthy looking and one is not so wealthy looking. And James raises the question, how will God's people treat both? Will they favor the rich over the poor? If they do, they have failed the love test. The love test shows no partiality. And the love test demonstrates itself with acts of love, which is why James goes on at the end of chapter 2 to talk about how faith without works is dead. Because faith is not just about professing your faith. Faith is about demonstrating your faith. Putting flesh on your faith by meeting needs with love. So there's the trial test, there's the love test, and then in James chapter 3, there's the tongue test. The tongue, what's coming out of your mouth, reveals what's in your heart. The trial test, the love test, the tongue test, and then in these verses that we just read here, 13 through 18, the leadership test. You see, these verses are about leadership. Leadership. Who is qualified to lead God's people? Who is qualified to have influence over the people of God? And God, God wants in his influencers to be those who are passing the, the trials test, those who are tempered. God wants his people to be passing the, the, the love test. And God wants his people passing the tongue test. So often, so often, the only kind of test that churches use to determine leadership is the pulse test. Right? Right? Take your pulse Okay, if you have a pulse, you're a leader. That's not a good test at all. Don't use that test. Use these tests. And so evidently in some of these pockets, in some of these, these groups that are gathering outside of Jerusalem, you know, someone's going, well, who's in charge? I want to be in charge. And some should be in charge. But James raises the question, not many of you, not many of you should presume to be teachers. See? 
And he picks this theme back up when he addresses the question in verse 13, who is wise and understanding. Why does he use the word wise and understanding? Because in the first century, the leader was the wisdom giver, the teacher, the sage, the one with understanding. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about who is wise and understanding and teaching, who is qualified to take on the responsibilities of leadership. And not many of you should be. Some of you should be, but not many of you because don't you know that that we who teach will be judged more strictly? We're going to be scrutinized. Had they forgotten that? Had some of them somehow assumed that by... uh, Assuming the responsibility of leadership that that would somehow exempt them from trials rather than expose them to more trials because now you've got a big target on your back and you're very visible? Is, had they forgotten that? Had some of them somehow assumed that, that to have spiritual leadership to them, they thought it was about privilege and, and, and title and, and validation when James says, oh no, it's not about that at all. It's about humility. Let him show it, verse 15, uh, by his good life. Uh, you can write in the caption there, you can write in the margin there, beautiful life. The, the kalos life. That's kalos, beautiful, excellent life. Uh, uh, yes, moral is fine as well in terms of good life, but if James just wanted to say the word moral, morally good life, he would have used the word agathos life, but he doesn't. He uses the word kalos life, which means there's an attraction to it. Some of you know really moral people who are just not very attractive, right? They they repulse you with their morality. James is talking about the kind of beauty and goodness and kalos that is good. I want that. I want that incredibly. That's the kind of leader God wants. So this context here is about leadership, all right? Who is wise and understanding among you? And so now to the content. What is it that he says about who is wise and understanding, huh? Well, what, what James says in 13 through 18 is that God wants his leaders to lead his people with his wisdom. That's what he says. God wants his leaders to lead his people with his wisdom. See, everybody has an operating system. Your oper- think of an operating system as a lens through which you see life. And your operating system is you put, on, you put on the lenses and that's how you see it. Everybody has an operating system. Everyone has a model. And James talks about two models, two sets. Wisdom from below or wisdom from above. And God wants his leaders to lead with him. I want you to lead those who belong to me with that which comes from me. Wisdom from above. Now, definition. When James uses the word wisdom, he's not talking about um, the Bible's term for wisdom. It has nothing to do with, with um, like what the score was on your uh, GRE or your ACT or your GMAT or your MCAT. Biblically speaking, wisdom isn't about um, how fast or how much you can process information, or how many degrees that you can get. Biblically, wisdom is not an intellectual gift. There's not a Big Ten university in this country that can confer a degree of wisdom. Can't. Why? 
Because wisdom comes from above. Wisdom comes from the Lord. The Lord gives wisdom. And so if we lack it, James chapter 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. How does God give wisdom? You have to suffer. <laughs> See, that's why he talks about trials. Yeah, but I, I, I don't want wisdom that bad. Well, you should. <laughs> really. And so wisdom comes from trials. You know, trials of many kinds. And tests, and the love test, and the tongue test. And we should ask God, and he gives it. And so... So in these verses, James contrasts wisdom from below with wisdom from above. Wisdom that is self-centered, self-glorifying, and Satan-inspired versus wisdom that reflects a beautiful, humble, peacemaking, Christ-focused life. And, and that's what these verses really just cover, you know? Uh, descriptors of wisdom from below and wisdom from above. And I cannot improve on these descriptors. I just can't. I mean, for instance, in verse 15, when wisdom from below is described as earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. Now, what is that in the Greek? Well, in the Greek, and I've studied the Greek. I've looked it up. In the Greek, it means this. It means earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. That's what it means. Can't improve upon that. And, and the seven descriptors of wisdom from above, they kind of remind us of uh, the fruit of the Spirit in, Jan, in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. These seven descriptors, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, etc. I can't improve on I can't unpack that anymore. All right, that's, that's boiled down to the stain at the bottom of the coffee cup there, okay? But what I'd like to do is to just put these two Operating systems side by side, wisdom from below, wisdom from above. And I'd like, to, I'd like to share with you some words that have helped me understand and apply what God's intent is. And they're, they're words that come from a literary mentor of mine, C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis touches on these two types of wisdom. Um, and he uses the term, here are the terms, Need love, wisdom from below. Gift love, wisdom from above. Need love. Need love. Need, need. See, you know, why are you here? Why do you, why do, you do what you do? Why, why do you come to church this morning? Why, why do you choose marriage? Why do you work where you work? See, and... That touches on which operating system you're going to draw from. And Lewis says there's, there's wisdom from below, which is need love. And need love asks, what's in it for me? Need love says, what am I trying to get? Need love is about filling a hunger or filling an emptiness. Need love is a vacuum which sucks into itself whatever it wants because need love wants to be served. Need love wants recognition, validation, glory. Need love says of a woman, I cannot live without her, but then once he gets her, he still can't live because he's not satisfied and content. Because need love is a consumptive black hole. 
And thus, need love is circular. It goes out of itself for the purpose of returning to itself with whatever has been gained. Need love's goal is to get something for itself. And much of what goes on in the name of love is this sort of thing. When need love says, I love you, it may as well be saying, I need you, I want you, I desire to take something of what you are to fill the emptiness inside of myself. Think about all the times that we have loved something because the beloved had value that we wanted to acquire, that we wanted to acquire. So need love is about acquiring for self. In verse 15 James identifies need love with this, with this earthly, unspiritual of the devil. And then, then he says in verse 16, envy and selfish ambition. And that's all need love. Because see, need love assumes a closed system, earthly, earthbound. Need love assumes that there are only so many pieces of the pie to go around. And so more for you means less for me. And to have less is to be less less worthy, less real, less important. To have more is to be more. And when you assume that kind of earthbound, unspiritual, scarcity mentality, then need love competes to the degree that even prayer to God is carried out for the purposes of achieving one's own selfish desires, which is something that we see very clearly in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. That's why James says that need love is about bitter envy and selfish ambition. And in its wake, it leaves confusion and anarchy because it wants what it wants, when it wants it, no matter who gets hurt. Need love. It's an operating system which James calls wisdom from below. Do you know anybody like this? James offers a better way, a better love, gift love, gift love. Gift love is not born of emptiness, it's born of fullness. Gift love wants to share itself, not take for itself. Instead of reaching out to get, gift love reaches out to give. Instead of a circle that goes out only to return to the source, gift love is an ark. It flows out simply to confer value, not acquire or extract value. Its sole agenda is to enhance the value of the beloved, not to acquire value from the beloved. And God's love is gift love all of the way. When you began to explore Christianity, you learn, you learn that there's a threeness to the oneness of God. And you, and you learn about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, how God is one uh, being in three persons, and don't ask me to figure that out, but there's a threeness to the oneness of God, who before all of creation, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit lived in perfect love, perfect unity, perfect community, giving, receiving, sharing, gift-loving between the three persons that make up our one God, our triune God. And that's why when God created the heavens and the earth, when God created us, it wasn't because he was lonely. (laughs) Not at all. Oh, it's because the Godhead, this is, 
this is so rich, so good, so beautiful, we're going to share more. So gift, God's love is gift love. It's about giving and sharing. And it's a steadfast, selfless, merciful love that creates and fills and forms and, re- forms and redeems the world, even when the world rejects the creator and savior. And because we are made in God's image, we are created to live in the reality of gift love, to care for the least of these out of a deep and abiding love for God and God's people. And that's why when you live in the reality of gift love, you never wonder what's in it for me because you know that whatever you receive and pass on to help and serve others comes straight from the throne of God. So you're filled by God's love and, and from God's throne and you're, his love is so overflowing that what you share is just overflow. And so in the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus says the blessed ones, the folks on the right, They are the ones who care for the very least of these. They live very much in the reality of gift love. They feed the hungry. They welcome the strangers. They visit the prisoners, care for the sick. And they do this to give God's love in Christ to someone else rather than gain or acquire or extract recognition or power in return. Gift love. That's why James says, Let him show it by his beautiful life, good life, callous life, by deeds done in humility, because this kind of love is just an overflow kind of love. Now, here's the deal. Every one of us, every one of us is capable. We have the capacity to display need love or gift love, you see. Each one of us has the capacity to operate out of wisdom from below or wisdom from above. And James knows that. And that's why he calls the question, who is wise and understanding among you? And since he's talking about those preachers or would-be preachers, I'll, I'll, he starts with folks like me. In these verses, he says, Randy, Randy, when you get up to preach, when you get up to speak, when you get up to teach, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? What's your motive? What are you doing with God's people? Are you about need love? Or are you about gift love? Are you trying to extract something from God's family for yourself? Or do you intend to give something of yourself that you have received from the Father to his people? What are you doing? Do you see this place as a pyramid upon which you can climb to achieve some Randy-centered goals so that you can spin into a Randy-centered story? Or do you see the Windsor Road Church family as a flock, a family, a community that belongs to God the Father who has temporarily assigned you to nurture and feed them with that which comes from him? What is it? What is it? John Maxwell talks about this very thing. One of you uh, were gracious enough to give me a book about leadership and what good leadership is. And Maxwell wrote about this. He said, if you were to ask leaders why they lead, why they should lead, you might hear that a leader's job is to be in charge, to make the organization run smoothly, to earn money for the shareholders, to build a great company, to make us better than the competition, to win. See, that's all need love, isn't it? It is. 
Maxwell says, many look at leadership like they look at success, hoping to go as far as they can to climb the ladder to get the highest possible position for their talent. And this is where Maxwell asserts that the bottom line objective in leadership is not how far we advance ourselves, but how far we advance others to the glory of God. That's gift love. Adding value, not extracting value. And great leaders add value by serving others. And thus the quote, only a life lived in the service of others is worth living. See, James is talking to folks like me. Why are you doing what you're doing? But don't forget, this letter was written to be read in the congregation as a whole. So James knows that the entire church community is going to be overhearing what he has to say to those would-be preachers. And so James wants them and us to dare to think about the question, why do you do what you do? Why? What's your motive? What's your operating system? What's your operating system for marriage, for work, for church involvement, for politics? You see, this is an all-encompassing, all-encompassing subject here. And James dares to ask us this awesome question, and then he dares us to dig for the answers. What would gift love look like at this church? What does it look like? Huh? Well, I think if you were paying attention to what Lisa had to say earlier, you get a glimpse of that, of being used by God to help others to to not acquire value, but to confer value and love. When I think about the $5,749 that was raised for the Dominican Republic team at last week's chili cook-off, that's a gift love kind of thing. God, wow, look what God did. When I think about the $1,815 given by God through you for Haiti relief. And just go outside and look in the foyer to see what God gave in terms of medical supplies through his people. I really think gift love looks like salt and light food and clothing distribution, enjoying table fellowship in two weeks with our brothers and sisters in Christ from Restoration Urban Ministries. A sitting with our children in big stuff, serving Student and children's ministries, gift love, gift love, to confer value, to confer love. What about at work? What would gift love look like at work tomorrow morning at 0800? Instead of using people to advance our career agenda, we work with people to advance God's agenda. You see, and some of us, our marriages would improve by 50% in the next 30 days if we stopped relating to our spouses in need-love mode and instead started living a gift-love kind of life. Verse 17, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Some of us are dating right now. And you're going out with a need-love kind of person. And I'm telling you, that guy is sucking you dry. Spiritually, emotionally, mentally, financially. And I just want to tell you, I want to tell you, 
can I just talk to the, my younger sisters in Christ as an older brother? If you're going out with a need love kind of guy, break up today. It's Valentine's Day. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't care. Well, I, won't have, I won't be able to go out there. Come over and have macaroni and cheese over at my. It's okay, right? Really? I mean, because you see this, you're going out with a need love kind of guy who. You're thinking, well, I'm going to get married to this. Listen, don't. I, really. I, I, I mean, cancel that date. And ask the hard questions, the gift love kinds of questions, like what plans have you made to provide a home? To what degree have you gone out of your way to make her feel secure and safe? What outward and tangible signs can you offer her that will not draw you both into a life of debt, waste, meagerness, stinginess, and constant worry about finances? What plans have you made to provide a home? See, well, but then, but then who will take me out? Better to wait than to settle. Don't settle. Please. Some of us here today are need-love people. Right here in this service, I mean, they were there 2,000 years ago. That's why James says in verse 14, you know, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, that's need-love. James says, don't boast about it. Don't get cocky about it. Don't deny the truth. What do I do? Repent! Repent. And why? Because your operating system affects others. That's why. Wisdom from below or wisdom from above. Both affect your family and your church family. You see, these believers are under trials. They're under trials of many kinds. They're being persecuted racially because of the Romans, and then they're, they're experiencing faith-based persecution by Hebrews because they're Hebrew Christians. And so suffering people don't need to be led or influenced by need-love people. I mean, it just doesn't compute. God's looking for leadership and influence that exhibits wisdom from above, gift-love gift love leaders is what God's looking for. Now, are you going to be one of them or not? That's the question. Well, I just want to close with this take-home question. All right, here it is. How can I tell which of the, which of the two types of wisdom is operating in my life? How can I tell? I mean, how, how, do, I, how do I know? How can I tell which of the two wisdoms are active in my life? How, how, how can I know the difference between the two? And the answer is this. The answer is this. Just turn around and look behind you. That's what James says. Just turn around and look behind you. What, what are you leaving? What, what are you leaving? What is in your wake? James says that need, love, leaves disorder. See? You see that? For where you have envy and selfish ambition, verse 16, there you have disorder and every evil practice. Just turn around. See, biblical leadership, church family, is not about concocting visionary ideas and then just rallying and motivating others to, to, uh, to, to gather around it. It's not. You know what? 
that's not even the kind of leadership that's effective in the corporate world these days. I mean, it, it's not. I mean, uh, uh, read a great article about that in yesterday's Wall Street Journal, and, but that's another sermon. Good leadership deals with the question, what is left behind? And if your vision for the future causes the past to be littered with chaos and disorder in every evil practice, you need another vision, like now. You need wisdom from above, because wisdom from above always, always leaves peace in its wake. Always. And it always leaves a harvest of righteousness, a congregation of peacemakers which sows seeds and up in the fall comes a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers. Peacemakers. Now, not peacekeepers. See, there's a difference between peacemakers and peacekeepers. Peacekeepers are, they merely avoid conflict and confrontation. That's not what I'm talking about. Peacemakers find their way through conflict and confrontation. And peacemakers often experience the violence the violence of conflict and trials, and they take it upon themselves so that the community can enjoy the fruit of peace. Wisdom from below, wisdom from above. Need love, gift love. Which is it going to be? Which is it going to be? You know, as a pastor, Valentine would be mortified at much of what's done in the name of love to commemorate the name to commemorate the day that his head was chopped off because of his love for Jesus. But isn't Jesus the only vision worth pursuing? And wasn't Jesus' wisdom from above in the flesh? And was he not the consummate peacemaker? Did he not fully absorb the penalty of sin on the cross, the anarchy and chaos of Satan upon himself so that we could enjoy what we enjoy right now. This harvest of righteousness that this pastor is so privileged to witness from this pulpit each week. Church family. (laughs) Wisdom from above. Wisdom from below. Which is it going to be?